I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scripture to Acts chapter 2. Our text today will be primarily verses 38 and 39. However, I will begin my reading in verse 29. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. Here once again, the very Word of God. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that it, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and ever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we this day will see in our eyes and hear in our ears the words of the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's table, as we understand these sacraments to be signs and seals of the great promises of God to His people. We pray, Father, that as we look into this scripture, that you would open our mind's eye, that you would illumine our minds and hearts, to these truths, and that we would embrace them with great thanksgiving. For indeed, you are the God of us and our children, as the scriptures teach us. So, Father, we ask now your blessings upon the preaching of the word. We pray that you would make dull those things that are in error, but that you would make vibrant and lively those things that speak the truth. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Today, later in our worship, we will be observing both sacraments of the church. Valor Michael Persing will be baptized, and we will then observe the Lord's Supper following that. This is a time of rejoicing, brethren. When the sacrament of baptism is observed, God's kingdom is growing. To witness this in our church is to see God's blessing on His church. It was my intention to preach, once again, from the book of James, but in God's providences, the Persians asked that their son be baptized this Sunday, and so I thought it fitting to remind us of the Bible's teaching on covenant baptism. 
And then in two weeks from today, we'll return to our study in Joel's prophecy. Next week, Elder Spiker will be preaching. Well, brethren, we live in times when the Church of Jesus Christ has a fragmented view of baptism. There are those who believe that baptism is much like a magical incantation that once performed accomplishes the desired effect, the regeneration of the person baptized. There are others who believe baptism is merely a symbol of something God has already accomplished in the life of the Christian convert. Thus, baptism is merely an act of obedience to the testifying to something that has already occurred. Throughout the history of the Christian church, there has been a third view that is taught in the scriptures and it is embraced by the elders of our church. This third view is commonly called covenantal baptism. It is this third view that is the subject matter of today's sermon. Though we will consider the biblical teaching of baptism for the next 35 minutes or so, we will only scratch the surface of the subject of covenantal baptism. Should you have an interest in delving further into the subject, please see me after the service and I will direct you to some study helps that will aid in your study. But as for today, we will consider three areas of thought. First, the covenant of grace in its old and new forms. Second, the nature of God as a covenant-keeping God. And third, the promise of the new covenant and its corresponding sign and seal. And assuming that we have time, I will then respond to two objections that are most often made by credo baptists to those who practice paedo-baptism. Well, let's go first to the covenant of grace in its old and new forms. Since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, and the corresponding curse placed upon all mankind and the creation, God in His infinite and unchangeable grace and mercy promised to provide a Redeemer to lift mankind out of sin and condemnation. We call this promise the covenant of grace. This covenant promise was given to Adam and Eve when God cursed the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where we read, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Orthodox Jewish Bible renders the last part of verse 15, He shall crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. Brethren, theological commentators from all walks of Christianity, regardless of denomination, have rendered this passage, Genesis 3.15, as the proto-evangelium of the Scripture, meaning the beginnings of evangelism, or the evangelical beginnings of salvation, and the promise of Jesus Christ. An offspring of Eve, the woman, would be the champion of salvation. And though his heel would be bruised, he will crush the head of Satan. God the Father makes this promise to Satan and Eve shortly after the fall from grace. Correspondingly, this promise would be further clarified and fulfilled in subsequent covenants that God made with the Old Testament patriarchs. 
Four covenantal promises would be made in the Old Testament that clarified this initial promise. The recipients of those covenants were Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Each promise or covenant given to these men spoke to an aspect of the initial covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. Though each of these covenants is very important to the understanding of the entirety of the covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant is the most important for our consideration today. In Abraham, God called out a man to be the federal head of the men and women of faith in the scripture. We often are confronted with the notion that Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. But, the, but he was not just the father of the nation of Israel, as Paul clarifies in his writings to the various churches. Abraham is called the father of the faithful in Galatians 3, where we read these words from Paul in verse 7. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Similarly, in Romans 4, Paul writes this paragraph regarding the headship of Abraham to us in these words. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Here Paul speaks of a promise. The covenantal promise given to Abraham, which is found in Genesis 17. I'll read that in a moment. But first I want to emphasize again the notion that Abraham is the father of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. By virtue of these teachings from Paul. Well, in Genesis 17 we see the very specific promises given to Abraham. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God to you, and to, to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are a the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Immediately following this covenant, Abraham is given a sign of the promise that God has made with him. 
That sign of the promise was circumcision. Each of the male descendants of Abraham on the eighth day of their birth, after their birth, were to be circumcised. In other words, they were to be set apart unto God. They were given a sign that they were different from all the children of the world. They were part of a covenant made between God and Abraham and his descendants after him. Notice that only the sons of Abraham received the sign, not the daughters. This will become important later in the sermon. Notice, too, that the covenant initiation was not dependent on the faith of the children. God was acting on behalf of Abraham's descendants without their permission or their understanding, just as he had called out Abraham. This does not mean that they would not have to repent of sin and practice faithfulness toward God. No, indeed both were required to remain in the covenant with God. What it does mean is that God defines the covenant and selects those who will participate. He will place his sign on those he sees fit to include in his covenant of grace. He is always sovereign in that selection. Well, one might object that that was the Old Testament, not the New Testament, and say, we live in the New Testament era, not the Old. Well, this kind of statement assumes a radical difference in how God deals with men. I would agree that we live under the New Covenant, as described in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 10 and 12. I would also agree that portions of the Old Covenant have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, never to be performed again. But I would strongly disagree that the covenant of grace, begun in Genesis 3.15 and reiterated in various forms to Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, has been extinguished. I don't believe that. Furthermore, I would assert that God does not change, and his covenant promise to Abraham has not changed. After all, it was and is an everlasting covenant to Abraham and his descendants, of which we are numbered, according to the Apostle Paul, by our faith. So that if I'm right, there should be corresponding evidence in the new covenant, both of the continuing covenant promise and its application. There are many such evidences that time permits me to cite but two. Is the covenant of grace, the promise of redemption, reiterated in the new covenant as it was given in the old covenant as a covenant with Abraham and his descendants? Our text makes this plainly clear. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. God has not excluded children from covenantal participation in the new covenant. When children are born to covenant believers, they are rightly called Christian children. Not because of what they have or haven't done. They are Christian children because of the covenant of promise God has made through Jesus Christ and their parents. Christians don't have Amalekite children or Canaanite children. They have covenant children in the covenant God has made with Jesus Christ and their parents. 
The promise or covenant is to us and our children, Acts 2.39, and is evidence of the continuity of the covenant promise made in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 17. Okay, but what about the application of the sign of the covenant to children in the New Testament? Where is the evidence? This is one of the objections that is so often brought up. Well, there are two short passages of the application of baptism to entire households in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, two separate circumstances are recorded of households being baptized. The household of Lydia in Philippi and the jailer's household in Philippi. Now, one might argue that the entire household believed in the case of the Philippian jailer. But no such assumption can be made in the case of Lydia's household. Only Lydia is said to have believed, but her entire household was baptized. Lydia's circumstance is notable for another reason as well. Until this account in Acts 16, there is no other account where baptism is specifically applied to a woman in the scriptures. No other place. In the Old Covenant, the sign of the covenant was given only to males. But in the New Covenant, the sign is expanded to females. In the Old Covenant, the sign was given to only those of the physical lineage of Abraham. But in the New Covenant, the sign is for all who are grafted into the lineage of Abraham by faith, which includes all nations. Thus, Jesus is correct when he sends out the apostles in the Great Commission to disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The New Covenant is a far more expansive covenant. Far more than the Old Covenant. And to exclude children from the sign of the New Covenant is to shrink the covenant when God is intentionally expanding it. That's an important notion to keep in mind when we think of the New Covenant promises. Well, let's deal with two specific objections. The first being, there is no specific command to baptize children in the New Testament. Therefore, children should not be baptized. Well, this hermeneutic is fundamentally flawed. If this hermeneutic were to be applied to the Lord's Supper as it is to baptism, women would not be admitted to the Lord's table. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a specific command to include women at the Lord's table. Yet the Bible teaches that they are part of the covenant community. We only conclude by inference that women participated, and we do that in 1 Corinthians 11, where there is no specific reference to women. Similarly, if there is no specific prohibition for many sins in the New Testament, should we then assume because God does not change in the Old Testament that he condemned, where he condemned bestiality, that he continues to hate this sin in the New Covenant? But where is the New Testament prohibition? There is none. So that hermeneutic is flawed. Merely because there's no specific command to baptize children does not mean they should not be baptized. This is but one example, but it strikes to a very important principle. 
Continuity between the Testaments is a real issue in modern-day evangelicalism. The Paedo-Baptists believe in the continuity from old to new, particularly when it speaks about children receiving the sign and seal of the covenant promises. Those who are Credo-Baptists believe in a radically different continuity. The second objection often made by Baptists is that Paedo-Baptism assumes baptismal regeneration. This is not the case for those who embrace covenant baptism. Those who embrace covenant baptism believe that every man or woman must repent of his or her sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Every man and woman must exercise faith for salvation. Absent the faith that motivates a man or woman to repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no regeneration of the soul. We believe that. For the Paedo-Baptists, the sign and seal of baptism is an evidence of the covenant of grace. God's promise to be a God to us and to our children. But we must live by faith, believing God will provide the necessary faith to bring our children to himself as Abraham believed by faith. The baptism does not regenerate. Grace through faith does. Finally, in our text, the phrase for the promises to you and to your children is unequivocal. Baptism is a sign and seal of the promise. Now let me ask a question that's important. Which is greater, the promise or the sign of the promise? When God gives us a promise, is that the greater thing or the sign that points to the promise itself? Obviously, the promise of God is greater than the sign of the promise. Well, brethren, if our children are recipients of the greater thing, the promise, why should they be excluded from the lesser thing, the sign of the promise? That's why we baptize our covenant children. God has given them the promise as well. The sign does not regenerate the soul, but it speaks to the very promise to which they are included. Well, in conclusion, I want to quote a dead theologian. I don't often do this, but I'll do it today. His name's Benjamin Warfield, an early 20th century theologian. I believe he put it well. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church, and of such, entitled to its ordinances. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures that teach us that you have given a great promise to those who live by grace through faith. Father, we thank you for the example of our federal head, Abraham, who when you called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he followed your summons, not knowing where he would go, not knowing how he would be cared for, yet he believed. 
and you were faithful to prosper him, both in salvation for his soul, but also to be the father of many nations to which we are numbered. Father, we give you thanks for that, that many, many, many millennia ago, you chose us when we were still far from you. You acted on our behalf when we were still sinners. And so, Father, we pray that as we, this day, once again, see the sign and seal of covenant baptism applied to a covenant child, that your blessings would flow to this child, that this child would know and understand saving faith, that this young man would grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and would wax strong and be filled with the Spirit as our Savior was, that he would follow in the Savior's steps, that he would be a child of yours. Father, we commit this to you because you are the one who provides what we cannot provide, the faith to believe. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your kind providences, through your great mercy, yea, by your grace, bring faith to this child that he will be faithful to you. Father, we we pray for the church and its many needs. We give thanks for the provisions you've made for your church through your Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, we see around us, and the nations around us, even in our own nation, persecution taking place against your church. Father, we pray that you would bring to confusion the plans of your enemies that they would be so confused, as we've seen examples throughout the Old Testament, that they would turn on themselves and away from your people. Father, we do pray for their salvation. We pray that they would hear the gospel and repent, that they would become traitors to the kingdom of Satan and warriors for the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would move mightily in the nations of the world, bringing men to repentance and faith. Father, should those who are your enemies not submit to you, we will not dismay. We will hold fast to the promises we find in Psalm 110.1, where you, your Father... Lord Jesus said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Father, we take comfort in that. That of the increase of Christ's peace and his government, there will be no end. And the zeal of the Lord will perform it. That too brings comfort to our hearts. And Father, we do desire to see the day when the glory of the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. We give thanks, Father, for these many promises, as we do the promise of salvation. So, Father, this day we pray that we would not lose heart, we would not grow weary in well-doing, but rather would be built up in the Spirit to know that the kingdom of God is advancing, even though we may not see it or perceive it. Indeed it is. And that one day it will flourish 
such that we've never seen it before. We thank you for the day that your son will return to this earth and finally put an end to his enemies. That we might live quiet, peaceable lives in his presence for eternity. For these promises we cling to, Lord. This is our hope and our heart's desire. Father, we pray that your blessings would be shown upon this local congregation, that you would add to our numbers. We thank you for our visitors today, some to come and celebrate the baptism, others to hear the gospel for many times over, and one among many Sundays that they have sat under your teachings, Lord. For those who may be here and have never heard the gospel before, or never responded to it, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn from their sin and turn to your Son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life. Father, we also pray for those in authority over us, as you've taught us. For those in the civil realm, Lord, you raise up kings and you put them down, Daniel teaches us. We also know, Father, that unless the civil magistrate kissed the Son, that he may be angered and they would perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. So, Father, we pray that you would give us civil magistrates who would bow their knee to your Son, Jesus Christ, who would do justice, who would love mercy and walk humbly before you. For those who do not bow their knee to your Son, Lord, we pray that they would hear the gospel and, and respond with humility bowing their heads, bowing their knees, confessing their sins and repenting, that you might lift them up to newness of life. Father, it's an awesome responsibility to govern men. The civil magistrates do not carry the sword in vain, as the Scriptures teach us. And so, Father, we pray that men would be sober-minded who govern others. But should they refuse and be stiff-necked to bow their knee to your Son, we pray that by your sovereign hand, you would replace them with men who do bow the knee to you. Father, we pray for those who guide your church. We pray that your church would have men who have bowed their knee to you in great humility and continue to do that day by day. For they govern and have the keys of the kingdom of God. The souls of your people are in their hands. And may they understand the severity of such a responsibility. May they be men of faith who know the scriptures and speak of those scriptures often, who teach them carefully. Men who pray and are given to prayer. Men who our pastors and shepherds, as well as those who govern in the church. Give us humble men for those responsibilities, both elders and deacons, and raise them up to do the work and protect them from the evil one, for they are objects of his wrath. And we ask that they would be protected. Father, all this we cast into your care, into your gracious and merciful hands. You have shown us mercy and grace beyond our understanding. 
We pray, Father, that you would continue to do that and that we would humbly receive your good gifts and perfect gifts, all of which come from the Father of lights who is in heaven. And now let us join our voices in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.